This is David Wilson and welcome to episode 43 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. On Another Track is speaking with people we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. I think I got you to record it locally as well last time, didn't I? Was that right? I got so many questions to ask you. Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah. Fantastic. Let's go ahead and have the conversation. If he's looking for a fan that's actually the the product that we're releasing, uh, then it's basically just another industry which is perfect for investors. That's the voice of my guest this week, Justin McAfee. He's the founder and owner of Right One Incorporated. If the sound of Justin's voice is familiar, you wouldn't be far wrong. Justin joined his way back in episode 27 of On Another Track. That was just prior to him attending London Tech Week in September. The event is the largest European tech festival uniting tech and talent in a world-class hub of innovation. Justin gives us an update on women in tech. We also get to see where he is with his flying car and more importantly, the fan technology off the back of that development. And finally, he gives us an insight into startups.com with a message from Will Schroeder, the founder. My first question for Justin was, did London Tech Week live up to his expectations? Yeah, absolutely. So London Tech Week, uh, I was expecting something a little bit different than what actually ended up happening. Uh, So the entire experience from Accelerate Her was phenomenal. Uh, Elka Goldstein just did a fantastic job actually putting on this conference in London. Right. In terms of actually connecting investors with potential entrepreneurs, uh, she also did a phenomenal job. Uh, She created this atmosphere of uh, connectivity, as well as an atmosphere of driving towards that social interaction after COVID. Bottom line, that last statement that you made was so important, wasn't it? To get people back on, not the bandwagon, but to get the momentum going again, wasn't it? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. That was actually the key conversation topic was, oh, is this the first event that you've actually been to after COVID? And for majority of the people there, yeah, it had been. So what did that do in terms of what was happening in the spirit of things? What was the atmosphere like there? Because this must have been a release of energy for a lot of people, eh? There was a little bit of an anxiety. And the best way that I can put it is that people just forgot how to be social. And so they were concerned that the the way that they were actually interacting with people was not really kosher or correct. So there's still that kind of question when it comes to uh, socializing after the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of actually moving forward, a lot of people had the guts to actually make that conversation happen. How many days did it occur? Was it three or four or five days, that type of event during the week or how long was it? So the event that I went to with Accelerate Her was just for the day. And did you find as, as you got into the event and as people started to relax a little bit, that the interactions started to happen and you saw that natural human, you know, vibe happening? Was that what happened? Yeah, that is what happened. So Elka, she she had a number of ways that she could have done the event, uh, but she got a larger space uh, and did wedding tables. Ah. So instead of having just uh, kind of a line of chairs uh, that was actually an audience actually facing the stage, uh, she put eight 
uh, eight to 10 entrepreneurs and investors actually together at particular tables and then shuffled people throughout the day uh, to actually spur on those interactions as well. Yeah, and that's a great uh, way of doing it because really then it becomes much more of a social thing rather than a business. You get, you've got that social feel of a wedding. You're moving around speaking to different people you maybe have never spoken to before. And that's a great way of getting the, I suppose, the creative juices going, eh? Absolutely, yeah. Not only that, but actually seeking the opportunities as well. Uh, there was a conversation that I was having on Lunch Club just the other day that was saying, you know, I, I love uh, what your resume and what your LinkedIn profile actually talks about when it comes to uh, hardware entrepreneurs uh, and the ecosystem that you're kind of developing. And um, the way that he said it was, you know, I see incredible uh, possibilities. And I was like, yeah, but Lunch Club is all about the opportunity in terms of the conversation. The possibility occurs from the action steps that occur with the first conversation. Oh, and so that's most crucial. I couldn't have summed that up better, actually, because, you know, in the, in the business I'm in doing and interviewing people, you're absolutely right. When I get to meet people on Lunch Club, it's a great catalyst for me just to start the ball rolling and start that conversation. But really, then we've got to make the mechanics of the thing work afterwards. I've got to send them a link. They've got to get on here like you are. And, and we start recording. But I love it because I think Lunch Club has been, I think, a very organic way of meeting people. And the way they've done the AI system, and, and I'm not sure if it's AI or just somebody in the background just say, oh, that match will be great with that match. I just don't know. But it seems to work, doesn't it? It, it does. And uh, I got to tell you just this this weird circumstance. So the other day I was actually having a conversation with a, a bunch of mentors and advisors uh, about um, the Right One's first production run. Right. I'm hoping that we're going to get to it here in a bit. Uh, but one of the things that was interesting during this whole conversation spree uh, that I'm trying to get advice and how to actually move forward in terms of the financing for this first production run, um, there's a lot of questions that I have because there, I, I know that there's a lot of things that I don't know. And so I'm trying to fish them out from people that have done it before. And Lunch Club actually set up this meeting for me, uh, and it was a just-retired supply chain specialist who worked for GE Aviation. I, I don't know how they were able to find the more perfect individual, uh, but it just happened. It's one of those like Apple circumstances, right, where they where Steve Jobs was just like, and it just works wow that 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 is no okay i mean we're we're not getting any affiliate links we're not getting any money off the back of lunch club we have just experienced it i mean the thing is we wouldn't have ordinarily met i don't think you know because my my tech background is from 30 years ago you know with gec when i first started in, in you know mechanical production engineering and you know electrical engineering but the lovely thing about it is that we we managed to meet up because the, obviously whatever the system saw and what i did really related to what you were doing. And I think I find that incredible. And that's what's so lovely about modern technology. Okay. But listen here, I want to ask you a question, right? Tell me a little bit about right one at the moment. So just to remind the listeners really what the concept is, the idea behind it, and where are you in the steps at the moment? So just to give you a 15 minute pitch in terms of the update for right one. Uh, so we've developed a 25% more energy efficient fan solution, and we've pivoted over to CPU cooling aspects. Uh, so what that means is that if you're a Bitcoin miner or a data center, uh, then we are the fan for you. Um, so 1,000 fans, and we have cut your electricity spending by 500,000 USD 
per month. That is incredible. Wow. So what you're working on, again, to remind the listeners, you were looking at the flying car concept. That was the original idea that we were talking about. But in order to sort of develop that concept, the flying car, you have to make sure the propulsion system's correct. And by virtue of the fact that you've been looking at that, am I, have I got this right? You've actually developed a much more efficient fan that can be applied to lots of different applications. Yes, that is correct. So a fan is a fan is a fan is a fan. Uh, that's kind of the analogy that I've been using and people are like, oh, yeah, you're just, uh, you're, you're full of trash. But if you think about a turbine, turbines are basically just fans that are in a row. So if we're able to actually develop the core concept as a startup uh, and actually produce it at mass, mass scale, not only have we developed the core concept from the very beginning in terms of R&D, which is basically just, you know, trade secret processing. The second step is manufacturing and assembly. So if we can actually take a novel concept or technology and actually mass produce it and data centers and Bitcoin miners are the perfect opportunity to actually produce it at mass scale, which is the original reason why we pivoted over from aviation to the CPU cooling aspect. We wanted to make sure that we could actually bring the cost of goods sold down incredibly. Yeah, and that's the key, isn't it, about anything to sort of be able to launch something onto the mass market. I mean, you look at Henry Ford, for instance. He saw the idea of a production line, didn't he? You know, for the the car to mass market the vehicle, in I don't know 1908 or 1909. So, what's your projection in terms of how you can get this kind of onto the market and how you can get the sort of timelines? What are they looking like? You know, there's actually a little bit of complexity right now. I mean, in terms of our supply chain, uh, we're actually facing some issues, and I think that's just due to what's happening in the globe right now. Um, so in terms of actually creating uh, a, a pretty creative solution to actually supply these components to our, our customers, uh, that's what we're going to be facing this next year. Uh, we're probably going to be having some tough conversations in terms of uh, trying to source some of these components. Um, but I, I'm not too concerned with how we actually develop it. I'm more concerned with making sure that we develop the, the correct product um, at scale. So for this first production run, basically what we're focusing on is that assembly and manufacturing process. Uh, just making sure that every supplier is actually on the same page and that we can actually produce the product within the tolerances that we specify. Okay, so I'd love to ask you about that process. So have you projected in your own mind how long it's going to take you to sort of be able to get this manufacturing concept done and where you're going to manufacture it and how it's going to get to market? Do you know what the timelines are on that? It's going to be about 12 to 14 months for us to actually produce the product at full manufacturing scale. And the reason why is exactly what we discussed earlier, Mm. is that uh, actually producing this novel product and actually trying to work with our suppliers to actually ramp up production. One, it's a raw material usage on their part. Two, it's more of a funding perspective on our part. So we can actually produce all the product or we can purchase all the raw material that's necessary but we got to reserve some of that cost so that we can actually assemble it and actually ship it out to the customer. Totally. Kind of this very delicate uh, chicken and the egg situation. Absolutely. You've got to find the path that's the kind of least resistance, but also maximizing what capital you have and resources that you have. And can I make an assumption that you're probably looking at partners at the moment? Have you got sort of people in in your kind of screen, your visibility screen at the moment? What's, What's the situation there? Are you talking about the supply chain? Well, not just the supply chain, about the manufacturing, about the development of the product. And you, do you, are you actively looking for partners in the spheres, the different spheres for the development of the product? Uh, it's already done. Oh, there you are. <laughs> I always ask the silly questions, so I, I didn't realize you were that far along. But great, carry on. No, 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 no. I mean, it's a good question to ask. A lot of people actually ask the same question as well. 
I mean, they're concerned about the supply chain uh, just as much as we are. Uh, so we actually started having these types of conversations weeks ago. Uh, and in some cases, uh, it's actually been longer than uh, four to five months uh, to actually have like get to this stage in the process. Uh, so in terms of actually ramping up, it's like I made this analogy about baking. Uh, so if you make six cupcakes, then you've got a set list of ingredients. Uh, but if you make 10 cupcakes, maybe the ingredients change a little bit. You make 100 cupcakes and you definitely have to go through this process of uh, it doesn't taste exactly right. Like, is it the mixing process? Is there something else that is happening? Do we have to uh, delineate this particular stage to make sure that the correct mixing occurs? Stuff like that. And that's exactly the process that we're going through as well as a hardware company is that we just have to work through the scale. So going back to London Tech Week, did you bring anything else back from that? Because I know there was some quite significant speakers there. I think Hillary Clinton was there and Alan Greenberg, a couple of the key people in the world that, you know, that are influencers and industrialists, I suppose, as well. What else did you bring back from London Tech Week? Was there any other concepts and ideas that you uh, want to share with the audience? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I was one of four men uh, that was actually in the room um, with about 150 women. So I was put on the spot a couple of times, uh, not mentioned by name, um, unfortunately, but I was uh, mentioned as, you know, uh, there's such a scarcity of men that are actually in a room filled with women. Uh, there is strong kudos that should be pushed uh, to these men because they're, they're actively seeking to be a part of the conversation. And it's women in tech. Uh, so Hillary Clinton was on the stage. Uh, there was the first black woman who is the president of the Law Society. And then there was also the CEO of Microsoft for the UK on the panel as well. And so hearing all of these women actually speak and talk about women and technology and uh, what the vision is actually looking forward uh, in terms of the role of women in technology, it's pretty crucial uh, that we actually diversify away from a, a male dominated kind of sphere sectors. Uh, within the C-suite. It's interesting, actually. I'm glad you said that about the women because I was looking through the, the, the list and I thought, my goodness, the, the ladies outnumber the men here. But what is that? Is is that a conscious decision on the part of business to to really kind of employ more females in the business? Or is it because there's more opportunities for females going in at the university level and, and the tech level and going in at the bottom end? Uh, I think that it's more of a, a shift in how we see thought. Uh, a lot of people would say that uh, influencers kind of influence culture today in terms of whether it's the, the brands that we wear on a day-to-day -day basis or the, uh, the things that we use daily. For women to actually be put into the C-suite, it's basically just broadening the perspective uh, overall of business. I mean, for you and me, we, we live vastly different lives compared to women. And uh, I live a vastly different life compared to you. Uh, so in terms of actually broadening the perspective and creating this kind of holistic nature, uh, bringing women into the C-suite is absolutely an imperative. So what's the next stage now? You've got the product uh, concept sorted out. You've got the manufacturing pretty much sorted out where you're going to probably manufacture. You know, you've got to try and sort of deal with the supply chains, which, you know, that's a bridge you have to cross. It's going to be a very fluid situation. What's the next stage for you guys at, at Right One? What's, what's the, the next move? The next move is literally to create the product, execute on the assembly, uh, and then deliver it to the customer. Uh, that's, that's literally the next stage. One of the things that I want to talk about today 
is that I created uh, three or four different entrepreneurial hardware groups. Uh, so the issues that I'm facing today are not dissimilar uh, from what a lot of entrepreneurs are actually facing that are in the hardware industry. And so what I did is I started cultivating all these entrepreneurs uh, so that I could figure out the things that I don't know. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. So what motivated you to do that? It wasn't just about the kind of the stumbling blocks, the roadblocks that were coming up. Did you feel pretty alone in, in the environment and not really knowing which way to turn? Was that one of the reasons? No, it wasn't so much a, an issue of, uh, you know, where do I turn? It's more an issue of um, what is the correct next step? And it's not necessarily the correct next step. It's more just is there something that I'm overlooking or is there a potential or a possibility or a contracting um, option uh, that would help me finance uh, a larger scale of growth uh, so that we don't have to go through these incremental changes? Basically, just talk to one person and say, uh, make it for us, but we need 600,000 units. And how do, you, how do you finance all that? Here's the big question. So for hardware, uh, everyone says that hardware is hard. Um, okay, yeah. And the reason why hardware is hard is because it's so capital intensive upfront. Uh, and really what you're trying to do is you're trying to bring the cost of goods sold down at the very beginning. And the way that you do that is through tool die manufacturing. Uh, so tool dies can be anywhere between $10,000 to $500,000. And really, you're not even talking about the assembly process. You're really just talking about pressing or molding or creating components for your, your product. And then after that, then you actually have to assemble it, uh, which is an additional machine. Uh, and then afterwards, it's logistics. Oh, totally. So it's a lots of factors that actually come into play with hardware companies. So if you were trying to attract um, different types of customers for the product that you've developed, I mean, who would you specifically be looking at? You already did the data mining. That That's an obvious one. What are some of the more obscure industries that you would like to attract? Right now, for the first product, we've been looking solely at people that are looking for a 120 by 120 millimeter fan. Uh, literally, it is the fan that is in your desktop computer. We can directly replace it. No additional hardware. So from there, then we want to look into more specialized industries. Uh, so we've been reaching out to airframe integrators, uh, which was the original customer that we were looking at in the first place. Uh, but really, once we release this first product, then we actually have the capital in place that we can actually bring on more engineering resources and create a more specialized solution for these particular customers at the scale that they need. Got you. And then on top of that, uh, we've actually been looking at uh, yacht manufacturers uh, to actually decrease their, their fuel burn. So we can actually create a more efficient uh, or help in terms of the climate crisis uh, for these particular boats, whether they're pleasure vessels or uh, mega yachts or commercial yachts as well. From a, an ecological point of view, in terms of you know, sustainability, are you designing the fan in such a way that it doesn't necessarily rely on just battery power or mains power or AC power? You can look at different concepts with using recyclable you know, energy from the sun, the wind, hydro. I mean, is that something that's in the, in the horizon for you? Uh, so for us, we don't care. We don't care where you get the power as long as it, it, it can get pushed to the fan. Customers are actually looking at our particular fan, not only from uh, an ecological standpoint or an environmental standpoint, uh, but also from a, a longevity standpoint as well. Uh, so for our first product, 
the standard fan actually operates for about 45,000 hours. Our product actually operates for about 150,000 hours. Wow. So 45,000 hours is about uh, three to five years, mm-hmm. uh, 20, running 24-7. Uh, 150,000 hours is 17 years running 24-7. And then on top of that, we engineered the product so that it is 100% recyclable, meaning that if you were ever to get to 17 years and you wanted to replace it, Right One could actually take it back, disassemble it, and provide you a cheaper fan to actually replace the fan that you've already purchased. Not only that, uh, but in terms of manufacturing, we would actually decrease our carbon emissions by reducing the amount of manufacturing that we would do for your recycled fan. Listen, I don't want to move too far away from flying vehicles and what have you, because I know that was one of the reasons that we originally started out having a conversation. So updates on the EV toll uh, situation. What do you know and, and what's the things that are coming over the horizon? So today, uh, Rivian just IPO'd, which is an electric pickup truck manufacturer uh, competing with Tesla. Uh, that was a big step just in terms of electric mobility in the United States moving forward. A lot of people don't realize that, but really what we're trying to do is diffuse the idea that electric transportation and range anxiety is not a thing anymore. And in terms of these manufacturers, they're talking about 300 miles per charge, 400 miles per charge. Uh, There's even an electric car company that's even talking about a thousand miles per charge. I mean, at that point in time, then you're talking about a commodity product called batteries. (laughs) It's no longer specialized. That's right. Which is exactly what's going to occur with EV tolls as well. We have the core concepts today. Uh, People are talking about these concepts, but they're still curious about how things are going to shape up. What's the technology that still needs to get developed? Do I actually trust the concept to actually transport me to a particular location? These questions are necessary. Uh, But the core concepts themselves go into the regulation. And so the FAA is starting to come out with additional regulation. There was a news clipping the other day about it. It was a committee that was put together by the government talking about advanced air mobility. Uh, So it's the first step in actually bringing together a committee uh, to actually approve these particular flying car concepts. I'd love to talk about our battery anxiety. You did bring that up a moment ago. We'll go back to that in a second, but I just wanted to just finish off our point about air mobility. It's interesting the difference between Canada and America at the moment. Canada doesn't really have too many regulations. They really see them as a microlight, and there's not any restrictions on speed and and weight uh, of the vehicle, what it can carry. Whereas I noticed in the US, they're a little bit more restricted. They're restricted to 62 miles an hour, and there's a certain limit on the weight that they can carry. And they have to be in rural areas, which is totally understandable at the moment. I can get that, you know. But what do we need to see in terms of not necessarily restrictions, but regulations or, you know, kind of boundaries? What do you see in your own mind to make it really viable? So this is actually something that I talked about at London Tech Week uh, on the air and space panel, actually. One of the questions is, am I going to be seeing flying cars go past my skyscraper apartment tomorrow? And the simple answer to that is, no, you're not. And the reasoning is exactly like a technology. Uh, So we're going to go through a phased process. And I mean a phased commercial process. Uh, So with hardware, everything is about iteration. The concept today uh, that flying cars are coming out with, like Volocopter, Lilium, all these different types of concepts, Uh, Before they actually fully get commercialized, they're going to go through an alpha stage, a beta stage, and then the commercial stage. And the reason why 
is because you have these number of factors like prototyping is so much easier compared to full scale production. Uh, typically, you have to either simplify parts or offload a manufacturing process so that you can bring the cost of goods down uh, per product versus prototyping. You make everything from hand to fit. So that, that's really what is ending up happening is that we're just going through that scaling process. Totally. And, and, and what was really interesting is, uh, again, doing my research, the idea would be to get it to the price of a kind of an SUV, you know, a medium to large SUV. And that's a, a quite a goal, but it's a very doable goal, I think, in my, you know, in my view. Yes, it is. And sorry, sorry I want to go back to the previous question. So in terms of this phase process over time, what's going to end up happening is that pre five years from now, we'll start to see flying cars in rural areas, uh, suburbans, uh, places Places like that, uh, that don't really have any crowded infrastructure, crowded uh, skyscrapers. Uh, but then as time actually wears on, then the airspace that flying cars can actually go into will also start to become more technologically relevant and we're able to actually have a, a tighter tolerance in terms of flight capability. Um, even with crosswinds and uh, headwinds and tailwinds and other flight dynamics that could affect the performance of the, the flying car. And then to answer your question there, in terms of uh, the price uh, per mile, um, we, we talk about it in price per mile per passenger. And so for a helicopter today, it's about $9 uh, per passenger per mile. And what these car companies, these electric VTOL companies are targeting is about $1.30 per passenger per mile. That's incredible, isn't it? That is really something. And, and how are they achieving that, do you think, in terms of the, getting the cost down to such an efficient level? Well, with a combustion uh, airplane, there really are three factors uh, that actually contribute to the price. It's not the cost of the airplane that you purchase, uh, just like a car. Purchasing the car, that's the main purchase for us. But for aircraft owners, the main purchase is really the maintenance that you have to do on a yearly basis, which is dictated by the FAA. Uh, the second is the engine maintenance specifically. Typically, if you get to a certain time period uh, with the engine, it doesn't have to break. You just overhaul it. And that's an FAA dictation as well. Uh, and then the third is fuel. So with an electric vehicle or an electric EV toll, you're talking about reducing all three. And it makes complete sense. And thanks for explaining that, by the way. Here, just wanted to go back to battery anxiety because that really piqued my interest because you know, me sitting here in good old Alberta, you know, with the Rocky Mountains in the backdrop, and we've got hundreds of miles, if not thousands of miles from north to south of the, of the, the province. Uh, I notice even with the guys who go out on the oil patch here, they always have an extra fuel tank on the back of their truck because they're so far away from their fuel source. How are we going to deal with battery anxiety in rural areas like this? What's your concept and your idea on that? So for range anxiety, it's the same thing that car manufacturers faced back in the day when combustion engines were a novel technology. Uh, I mean, the amount of research that has actually been done on uh, internal combustion engines is ridiculous. We have perfected the technology. And some would say that we've actually reached the ultimate status for combustion engines. And the reason why electric vehicles haven't come out until today is really because of this idea that um, it's more a marketing ploy. And I wouldn't say that it's a marketing ploy from a particular segment of the population. It's more just the aspect of it. it there wasn't a business case uh, for a business to succeed on a electric motor. And so that's the reason why it's only taken until today to actually make it more of a commercialized industry. 
I want to just sort of dig a little bit deeper though, right? Because with your background in this technology, do you, do you think, and I know you made the statement that battery anxiety or range anxiety really shouldn't exist anymore, but it does still do as human beings. We always feel that we're going to run out of fuel or gas and we're going to run out of batteries. Is there any way of, of having some way of self-generating that on a vehicle? I'm really talking very hypothetically here. What, what, what options are there? Uh, that's a phenomenal question. Uh, so there's a, there's a few options that are actually currently being researched right now. Uh, one of the options is actually called a piezoelectric. Uh, so a piezoelectric basically creates uh, energy through a vibrational uh, mechanism. Uh, so you can talk about solar panels being on a car, but if you actually create um, some of these piezoelectrics and you put it onto the body of a vehicle, you could essentially like press or indent these piezoelectrics and actually generate power uh, that way. So if you're talking about a car that's actually covered in them, well, maybe the car could actually be on the highway and from the air buffeting with the piezoelectrics, you're talking about actually generating electricity uh, to actually fuel the car. Wow. Uh, so stuff like that uh, is actually being researched right now. Uh, BMW, I don't know if they're actually researching piezoelectrics, but with their century kind of concept, uh, you're talking about a, a wheel well uh, that actually moves with a particular wheel to actually help with the airflow uh, that actually goes around the vehicle. Uh, more specifically, the wheel well. Uh, indentation. So they're trying to reduce the amount of airflow that actually gets captured into the wheel well, and then the drag that's actually induced from the tire actually spinning in that wheel well. Incredible. I mean, this this is a, now here's the thing, and this is what I love about technology, right? Is you take an existing technology and you apply it in a different way, and and that's what I love. And piezoelectric makes complete sense, you know, to me, because it's not just going along with the buffeting of the air, but if you had a suspension system that was related to a piezoelectric system, that could do generate things as well. So really what you're doing is you're making the concept or the idea of moving much more efficient because not only are you reducing drag, you're actually increasing energy. You're, you're actually producing energy. Uh, the only problem with it is that you have moving parts. Uh, so when it comes to uh, parts that are actually a part of a car today, uh, you've got about 1,250 suppliers uh, that are actually bringing in parts into the assembly plant and then through the assembly process getting put onto vehicles. Uh, so if there's any way for you to actually reduce the moving part or the, the component where there could be a failure over time, that's where the money is actually truly going to be. It's not going to be in, in actually putting this novel technology onto a commercialized car uh, because the last thing that we want is customers coming back the day after or the day after that saying, you know, one piezoelectric actually just tore off in the wind. Uh, replace it for me because it's under warranty. Got you. That's interesting. You know, here's another thing. Um, I know the Russians way back in the 1940s, 50s and the 60s, probably into the 70s, they looked at the ground effect of having an aircraft, and it wasn't it wasn't technically an aircraft, it wasn't technically a boat or what have you, but it, they used a ground effect where they flew at very, very low level and they got that, that compression or that air compression that allowed the extra lift and it allowed a much more efficient way of travelling. Is that something that's been looked at as well within the concept of flying vehicles? You know, that there's a critical height at which you can fly these to get the best and most efficient distance. Yeah, so you're you're basically just talking about a ground effect. Uh, so we see it as a, a pilot uh, basically every day. Uh, so there's actually three stages to a landing. And uh, one of them is the descent. The second is the cloud. I mean, we call it the flare. 
The third part is the touchdown. Uh, so in the flare, you're you're essentially using the ground effect to actually slow the aircraft into a point where you can do a nose up configuration and stall the airlift uh, that goes across the wings to actually bring the aircraft down onto the ground. Uh, so if you've had those particular moments where it's a rather rocky landing as compared to a smooth landing, the reason why is because the pilot flared too early and then it stalled the, the airlift over the wing and the aircraft actually dropped onto the tarmac. Interesting. The reason for the rocky landing. So let's take the idea of the um, the ground effect. Could you apply that to cars so that yeah, the initial idea of, of sort of like getting something going along and it's like uh, there's a program called Joe 90 from the 60s. It was a puppet marination program from the guy that developed Thunderbirds, right? And and what happened was they had the vehicle had four wheels and what happened was as it, gra- it gradually gained speed, the wheels folded up and then there was this ground effect, you know, and then it took off, you know, with jets and what have you. But could that be the concept of, of a vehicle that, that is kind of a hybrid almost between a flying car and a, and a standard electric vehicle for the roads? Is that a possibility? That could be a possibility in terms of a phase technology as we move forward. The way that you're describing it, it kind of reminds me of a hovercraft today. Uh, the only problem with it, uh, hovercrafts being the, the main point of contention, is that you have lack of control. Uh, and that's really where eVTOLs are starting to try and uh, come up with more mobility options, uh, just in terms of thrust, is that we're, we're trying to replicate the same maneuverability that a helicopter has today and replicate it for the commercial sense tomorrow uh, at a much cheaper rate. Very interesting. And actually, you really hit a really good point there is that that lack of control and directionability and, you know, keeping it relative to other things. What's what's been developed on that side of the concept in terms of keeping things on track? So if you're in the air, you're not going to hit somebody or you're not going to crash into somebody. What's the technology doing there? Uh, So if we're talking about the technology today, the way that we would describe it as a pilot is that it's uh, situational awareness. Uh, So we have a number of instruments that are on board that actually talk about Uh, where airplanes are, uh, where they're flying, the direction that they're flying, the speed that they're flying, and the altitude that they're flying at. A lot of this information is actually um, sent over to air traffic control uh, so that we can have another pair of eyes uh, that are actually watching our particular aircraft as we're flying through airspace. Uh, So the chances of a mid-air collision happening and and or occurring is most likely if a pilot turns off everything. Yeah. Yeah. And even then, the second airplane would actually have to turn off everything for it to become a, a particularly bad issue. And that makes complete sense. And so there is a number of redundancy type systems within the flying system that you have. And uh, I mean, I suppose it's a big worry for everybody. Yeah, great. Love the idea of flying cars. Everything flying over Metropolis 1928 was right, blah, blah, blah. But really, the reality is if you do you know, end up falling out of the sky. What systems are they building in now to make things more safe so that people will take up the technology and use it? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. Um, Sirius has actually been pretty pretty much at the forefront uh, with a parachute that's actually built into the, the, the cabin. In terms of uh, a piloting community, we tend to make fun of Sirius pilots because of the parachute. Why would you have a fixed wing, an airplane, specifically if you're going to just deploy a parachute and literally just total your entire airplane? When you can glide the airplane down onto a road or into a field or a number of other different areas uh, that would be able to accommodate you. 
I mean, then from the public perspective, should I be concerned about an airplane actually dropping into my backyard? Or in the instance of uh, the Boeing 777 uh, incident, where the the cowling uh, to the engine actually dropped over Denver, should I be concerned about debris actually falling from the sky on a regular basis? And the answer that I have for you is that the FAA, the rules are made in blood. And what that means is that every regulation uh, that has actually been made by the FAA, there had to be either some person to have died in the incident, or there had to have been some serious calamity that occurred, uh, which the FAA investigates all incidents. Uh, it's rigorous. It is really rigorous. You're halfway through listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is Justin McAfee from Right One Incorporated. Next, I wanted to ask Justin a little bit about his background, just for the listeners that have not heard his first podcast in episode 27. And also, how has he brought a sense of community to entrepreneurship? I graduated with a mechanical engineering degree in 2016, and I was working with a graduate professor to commercialize a high-tech product. Uh, That's really my bread and butter and my niche is in hardware manufacturing as well as uh, technical products. So from the first project, which was a grenade launcher for firefighters, I moved over to brands that you know and love today. I basically supplied one product where my company was one of 1,250 other companies that supplied products uh, to your car. And uh, from here, I've actually taken that learning and applied it to Right One, uh, which is why we're going through the process of actually scaling up our manufacturing and how I actually know what it is that we need to do, how we need to actually develop these relationships to move forward, and then also to actually capitalize and actually have an impact of the product uh, for people like you uh, that are doing Google queries uh, for a school project. There's so much that you've probably learned over the last goodness knows how many years trying to develop right one and also just been to London Tech Week. What other things are really important that you want to get there for people? Yeah. So the most important thing is just a sense of community. Uh, Really, if you're an entrepreneur and you're struggling uh, to actually commercialize your product or you don't know exactly what the next step should be, uh, that is a perfectly logical question and a perfectly sound question to be asking. And really, What you should be doing is trying to seek out other individuals who have either experienced what it is that you're trying to accomplish. The first step to actually do something like that would be to talk to investors. Investors are not only investing time in you uh, to help you commercialize your product, uh, but even before the deal is actually struck and they hand you over a check, uh, you should be asking them questions. Uh, and they're going to ask you questions. And so while you're actually talking to investors, it's a two-way relationship that's being developed. The way that I, the entrepreneur, is actually developing the relationship with the investor is I'm actually answering particularly tough business questions that maybe you haven't actually thought about. Uh, So having those milestones in place and actually setting up a secondary meeting with the investor is so crucial. Investments are made on lines, not dots. The second thing with an investor is that if you're asking the investor questions, not only does it show that you're actively pursuing the state of commercialization, which is you know, a credibility standpoint, but also you're trying to poke their particular knowledge. And if you exceed their knowledge, they're not the right investor for you. And if they don't have a connection for you, you shouldn't be looking at them to invest in your company. Oh, that's a really good piece of advice. I like that. Poke their knowledge. I love it. That was a really hard lesson for me to learn. I mean, in terms of the hardware 
ecosystem, but there is not really an investor that's here in Boston that would invest in a hardware company. And if uh, someone on the podcast comes in and says, uh, that's false, great, please introduce me. Because I have spoken to basically every single investor here in Boston. You know, and that's a great challenge because it's really throwing the gauntlet down and saying, come and talk to us. That's the whole point of the podcast is to get that message out there. Would you be still open to talking to people from other countries as well who have developed similar things or have been involved in the industry and have got another avenue that, that you could look at as well? Uh, yeah. I, I welcome the conversation. Uh, I actually spoke with a hardware entrepreneur on Friday that actually came up with a filtration system for water in third world countries. Oh my. Um, yeah, uh, we're looking at it from a, more of a scalability standpoint. I mean, it's a novel technology, but what should end up happening as you actually grow the business is you need to look at how it's going to scale. And so that's a particular issue that hasn't really been solved right now for this particular product. Uh, so while the proof of concept is there and while it works, uh, will it work for mainstream production? Can we actually bring it into the United States and will it be more efficient than what we've got? Scalability and hardware is really the crux uh, of actually making a business case uh, and actually moving forward with it. Just finally, before we go, if somebody who is listening to this, they're still at school, maybe they're at university or something, or they've been in another industry, what will be your advice about coming into an industry such as this, what are the key attributes that you have to have, do you think, to be successful? Mm. Uh, so I recently joined an organization uh, because I was looking for, it's called startups.com, uh, but they have a feature that's called uh, founders groups. Uh, so basically what I was talking about with the three or four different hardware groups uh, that I actually brought entrepreneurs in for, uh, I basically replicated it uh, inside startups.com because I wanted to talk to more hardware entrepreneurs as they start to actually go through the scaling mechanism and talk with people that are currently going through it or after they've actually gone through it. And so as I continue to have these conversations, I flesh out my strategy. Uh, so instead of having just one path forward, I've got plan A, plan B, plan C, D, E, F, and G. <laughs> <laughs> You're a man after my own heart. That was the reason why I joined this group, startups.com. Uh, so there was a, a connection. Uh, his name is Will Schroeder. Uh, he's the founder of startups.com. And uh, he's absolutely phenomenal uh, when it comes to helping entrepreneurs. Um, that is really what I'm trying to accomplish today, is I want to help har hardware entrepreneurs or people that are actually in university or primary school right now uh, that are actually contemplating going into entrepreneurship. Uh, it should not be scary, uh, but it is a process. There's a tweet that I made to Will Schroeder in particular that was saying, if you lack confidence, uh, start a business, or at least that was the tweet that he made. And my response to it was, if you lack confidence and you start a business, you're going to beat your head against the wall uh, until your ego is so low that you're going to build your confidence in the process of actually building this business. Actually, let me go ahead and just read the tweet uh, word for word. Go for it. Uh, if you ever need a, a confidence builder, build a business. You'll keep bruising your ego to the point where you succeed and become confident. You can't say better than that, can you? <laughs> mm. uh, Will Schroeder's tweet was, I'm all for education, but I have to say the best way to get an education on being a startup is to build a startup and ask as many smart people as possible how to do it better. This is a sport you need to play firsthand. Fantastic. Well, thank you for that. And listen, I, I would love people to be able to get in contact with you. So what's the best way of reaching out to you? 
Yeah, the best way to reach out to me is through uh, my email, uh, justin at flyright.one. And then the second would be my LinkedIn profile, uh, which I you have a link to. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And we definitely can put that up at the end of the um, the footnotes of the uh, the episode for sure. It's been great catching up again. And I just love the things that we talk about. And uh, like I say, I'm such a geek when it comes to this stuff. And you answer all my questions, which is great. And so I think you're going to be a great resource to anybody that's thinking about that sort of manufacturing process or just trying to get a product onto market. So I, I would urge every, anybody that's listening to this to reach out to Justin and just have a conversation, even if it's just a tweet. Eh? Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you again. And, you know, I think this is going to be a regular thing. I think we're going to be checking in once or twice or maybe three times a year just to see where you are because I'm dead excited about where you're going to go with this fan and I wish you the best of luck on it. Thank you so much. And honestly, I, I would love to actually impart the wisdom that I know through the through the journey and through the process. I mean, just like Will Schroeder's talking about, this is a sport that's best played firsthand. And for me to actually be able to actually share that kind of firsthand knowledge or stuff that's tacit, and on my mind uh, that's prescient today uh, is always changing from the last podcast that we had to the podcast that we're going to have next time as well. Correct. I can't agree better than that. Justin, thanks again for all your time. I really, really appreciate it. Take care. All right. Cheers, David. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Justin McAfee from Right One Incorporated helping you to scale your technology and manufacturing business. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BrickCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America.